many of the medics that I knew were my students that I had taught when I was at the schoolhouse. There were several of them that were killed in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I vowed to make sure that we would do all we could to make sure that they came home. And I think that was part of what my job was. I didn't want to leave anybody hanging. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Retired Army Master Sergeant Sam Rodriguez served as an 18 Delta Special Operations Medic within several key assignments during a 29-year active duty career. In this episode, Master Sergeant Rodriguez talks about his pathway to becoming a Special Forces Medic and explains how the training and experiences of Special Operations Medics have evolved. He also talks about the history of the Special Operations Medical Association and how it has utilized lessons learned to improve care on the battlefield and save lives. Sam shares some helpful resources and information on programs for veterans and first responders to help them improve their quality of life following traumatic experiences. Find out more about Master Sergeant Rodriguez and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Master Sergeant Sam Rodriguez to Wardox. Sam, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate the invite. Thank you very much. So can you tell us a little bit about your pathway first to joining the Army, and then how did you decide to become a special operations medic? Well, you have to go back a number of years. I actually joined the Army in 1979. I was living on Long Island, New York. I grew up there. And initially, I came into the Army as a 19 Delta Cav Scout. After being assigned to Göppingen, Germany, I, I really enjoyed being part of a team. And I'd played sports throughout my high school football, and, and I missed being on a team. So uh, that kind of drew me to the military. And from there, I served in the cavalry for three years, and then I ended up having a break in service. I got out and came back in as a 13 Fox forward observer. And so I was on the conventional side for nine years. And then after that, I'd uh, tried out for special forces and wanted to try to do medicine because as a 19 Delta Cav Scout or a 13 Fox forward observer, there's not too many jobs out there. And so um, I thought that having an opportunity to study medicine would be able to do two things. I'd be able to further my education. And then the other piece was to be able to help my brothers and sisters in arms. Did you have any family that had served previously in the military? I sure did. My uh, older brother, he was 14 years older than me, uh, Freddie Rodriguez. He served as a Marine in Vietnam in 67 and 68. And he kind of influenced me quite a bit. He influenced me to go into the army and not the Marines like he did. So, but yeah, he was over there and, uh, during the thick of it and uh, he came home with, with some ghosts, but at the same time, I learned a lot from him. I did. So tell us a little bit about that training to become a special operations medic. What, what did that entail for you? Well, I had been at a high school for close to 10 years. So it was like drinking water from a fire hose initially. The course is, is really intense. You have to be both physically and mentally prepared in order to 
attend the SF or Special Forces qualification course. Things that I used to tell people that had asked me about joining was, you know, make sure you're physically right. Make sure that you're physically in shape and, and you're taking care of your body, you're taking care of your, your mind, because then when you get tired, you can lean on your physical ability to be able to stay in the game. And so uh, it's important to be able to prepare yourself that way. So did you choose to be 18 Delta or is that something that they said, based on your skill set, we think that you'd be best serving as a special operations medic? And, and what are they looking for for the skills and qualifications for a medic in that environment? You have to have the intellect to be able to be accepted into the 18 Delta program. You have to have a certain GG. I'm not sure what it is now, but it had to be over a certain amount. And I did look at being a, a medic. I knew it was going to be difficult, had not been in the medical field, but there are, are a lot of soldiers that not being in the medical field, they uh, decide to go into the medical field. We had mechanics, cooks, myself being artillery and cavalry. And so it's all a matter of just aptitude. Um, in the end, you have to be committed for one thing. It's not something that you go into lightly because it takes, it's kind of like going into medical school. And so you have to be prepared to be able to study and be devoted to graduating. So, so you keep in touch with 18 Deltas that are serving today. How would you say that your training back in the day is different from what those medics are learning today? Essentially, the principles are the same. And that's something that I learned from my time as an instructor at the Joint Special Operations Training Center, where the 18 Deltas get trained now. The principles are all the same. It's a matter of the order that they're doing it now. In terms of trauma, which is one of the one thing that, that'll drum you out of the course if you can't catch on to the sequences and everything. We used to have trauma one, two, and three. Nowadays, they have tactical combat casualty care that they use as a basis. But you have to know the physiology and the anatomy of a person or a human in order to be able to be a, a good body mechanic, as we used to call them. If you wanted to be a good medic, you had to understand the base model, if you will. We always would try to relay it to, to the students in terms of, think of it as being a, a mechanic on a car. If you don't know what's under the hood, you can't fix it. So that really resonated with me as not being a medical guy from the beginning to me being able to use that same example to the, the medics that we used to train. What's different? I believe it's the equipment, some of the advances that have been made. And in terms of tourniquets, we used to have kind of a belt or we would use a cravat in order to make a, a tourniquet. But these days they have a, a dedicated piece of equipment to be able to do that, the, the cat tourniquet and some of the other ones that have come out. So you were part of an ODA, an Operations Detachment Alpha, with the 7th Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg. What are some of the most challenging aspects of being a medic in Special Forces or other Special Operations Unit? I'd first say that you have to be a good soldier. You have to be competent and confident in your being a basic soldier, doing all the, all the tasks that are, you're being assigned in a complete and proper way. If you can't do that, then 
work on those skills and then come back because everybody has to have those basic soldier skills, marksmanship, physical fitness, those, those baseline things that need to be aligned in order for you to be able to get through the course. Essentially though, you have to be a team player. You have to be somebody that's going to not just think about themselves when it comes to a task, pitch in and, and just be somebody that's going to enhance the team. Some of the hardest things is you have to be able to prepare an ODA to be able to deploy. You have to teach them in terms of your job. You have to learn their job. And then you have to be able to learn about where you're going, doing an area study in order to figure out what is it that's going to be the biggest threats for your ODA or stop you guys from being able to do your mission. And so uh, making sure that you prepare yourself well in terms of packing your own gear, making sure that it's the right gear for the uh, area of operation that you're going to. So those are the kind of things that uh, if you're not committed to doing it, then it might not be the, the line of work you want to go into. We know missions are all different, but generically, what are the responsibilities of that special operations medic on a special operations mission? What equipment are you carrying as kind of the, the base load that you bring? And what is the expectation as far as what you can do to save someone's life? So thinking about that, I think a, a lot of it has to do with the area of operation that you're going to. If I was going to Panama, let's say, I would think that the missions that we'd have to execute would be essentially foot patrols because of the jungle. So essentially, I know that I've got to carry everything on my back. So I've got to pack my, my rucksack. I've got to pack my first aid kit or first aid bag, I should say, in such a way that I have everything that I need to be able to sustain a casualty depending upon the evac. The time, the time it takes to evac a, a one of our teammates or a host nation individual that we might be working with as well. The other thing that you have to do is you have to make sure your team is carrying what they need as well. Provide self-aid because it just makes it us that much more mission capable if, if I'm training my guys that they have a kit that they can go ahead and use for themselves if they get, if we're separated. And then a, a lot of times, which we are, when we're doing foot patrols, so it's important for them to have that type of equipment. If we were over in Afghanistan, now you're talking more vehicular type of missions. And so you would essentially have your aid bags in the, in the vehicle to be able to, which would be a, a heavier bag. And then you'd have a, a lighter bag that you can go ahead and get out and do foot patrols uh, if needed be. As a special operations medic, you're going to be potentially placed into situations where you don't have a lot of medical support, yet you have a lot of training. What kind of procedures are special forces, special operations medic prepared to do at the tip of the spear? Are they doing cricothyrotomies? Are they putting in chest tubes? Are they hanging blood? What kind of actions are they doing to save lives on the battlefield right at that tip of the spear? Absolutely. They're doing all those procedures. It's what they get trained on when they're at the Joint Special Operations Training Center in Fort Bragg. They get taught how to do a cricothyrotomy, chest tubes, 
provide whole blood, do transfusions if need be, if they don't have any kind of support. Essentially, they try to sustain the patients or the casualties for at least 72 hours. That's part of the planning process. It can be a, a lot longer than that. And so within their bag, they're carrying the things that you mentioned along with having to suture if need be. It just really just depends upon the type of wounds. But one thing that they try to do is make sure that they coordinate with higher headquarters so that they can facilitate evacuation depending upon how far away the support is and how far in country they are. So Now, you also served as an instructor at the U.S. Army Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg. And I would suspect that part of that assignment is due to the experience that you had and relating that to the folks that are coming in for training. Are there any particular memorable clinical experiences that you had on missions that that you'd be willing to share kind of to explain a little bit what it's like to be a special forces medic on that front line? Sure. We had a mission to a a country that part of the Amazon basin, a small town that uh, we were going in to do humanitarian and civic action mission. And so, or HCA. And during that mission, we were deployed for about 75 days or so. And our mission was to operate a clinic that was in this country that was not accessible during the rainy season by vehicle. So you had to fly everything in. So we flew in up to a dirt runway, approximately four or five pallets of uh, our equipment, plus some of the medical equipment that we were going to need. Part of the team was our ODA, and also we had a a dentist, a a veterinarian, and a a PA, our physician's assistant, that was along with us. And they dropped us off, and we had to find all kinds of different vehicles to be able to uh, get the equipment off the runway. Had to get everything set up, and during that time frame, we saw approximately over 5,000 individuals, women, children animals. We spread out into different teams during that time and and we really made an impact and it was very well received throughout the community. And we did some surgical procedures on some people that they'd been living with some of the afflictions that they had for 10, 12 years with no hope of getting it resolved. There was several mothers that had had problems giving birth that the PA was able to to help them with and refer them to the right people and coordinate transportation for them, which it's life-changing for them. They don't have access to first world medicine like we do. And so the impact that we had, I think, was huge. So you finished your active duty time as a senior enlisted advisor for the United States Army Special Operations Command. What kind of advice did you provide to that command from the medical perspective and the enlisted medic? What were the concerns when you were in that role? Funny thing is, is that when we were in a team, team room, a lot of times we would say, hey, what did those guys up at the headquarters do for us? We don't really get a whole bunch from them. And then one day I woke up and I was one of those guys up in the headquarters. And part of it had to do with remembering where you came from, remembering where you were, and what kind of support you needed. And so I would always have an open door for the 18 Deltas or the Ranger Medics. Didn't matter what unit, 160th. I wanted them to come tell me what their requirements were. 
so that we could try to take care of them. And it was, um, there was a lot of policies and procedures that you had to go through. And it's a long process to learn exactly how to negotiate to get gear and the right gear that the individuals that are going to the field need. So I facilitated, I attended the meetings and helped push forward. We worked on getting them the TCCC kits that they needed. When it came to the tourniquets, when they started the influx, we tried to make sure that they were able to get a hold of Anytime they needed anything to get the mission done downrange, we were trying to, to get a hold of, and that's, that was an important role. I think there was many of the medics that I knew were my students that I had taught when I was at the schoolhouse. And there were several of them that were killed in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I vowed to make sure that we would do all we could to be able to make sure that they came home. And I think that was part of what my job was. I didn't want to leave anybody hanging. Everybody worked really hard to do, to take care of them. They did. So after retiring from the United States Army, after 29 years of service in 2009, you continued to serve as a lessons learned senior operations analyst for USASOC headquarters at Fort Bragg. In your time there, what would you say were some of the major lessons that were learned in that special operations community from the medical standpoint? From the medical standpoint, it was important that we were able to collect from those units that were coming back from being deployed to whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq, or the Philippines. And the main reason is because we were trying to take the information that they would provide and pass it to the, to the unit that was coming behind them that was deploying after them. We would try to prepare the units that were um, getting ready to deploy. And so we would collect the information and uh, put it into the database, but then we would touch base with them and say, hey, did you get the information? So that when they were getting ready to deploy, they would go for their, uh, their pre-deployment training to uh, different training areas throughout the United States. And they would be able to implement those changes that the unit before them, if let's say that they were replacing somebody. And so unit comes out of the theater, new units going into theaters, if they would overlap and try to integrate the medical training that they had received that gave them the best opportunity to bring in all their people home. Was there anything specific that, that you recall that you said, man, this was a problem and we really figured it out and were able to take those lessons and help bring more people home. In terms of uh, medical, not so much, but operationally, when they started doing the village stability operations, they integrated the units or the ODAs into the villages where they stayed as opposed to just pulling out and being on the base camps. And so that interaction with the, especially in Afghanistan, really helped. It really helped because the medics were there all the time as opposed to just being there periodically. And so having that constant contact gave more confidence to be able to trust the U.S. forces and the mission that they were trying to provide. One of the other things that you've done after retiring is you're the historian for the Special Operations Medical Association. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and, and how it started and what it does? 
Special Operations Medical Association has been around unofficially since 1987, 1988. And it was started by a major Steve Yevich, later became Colonel Yevich and was one of the United States Special Operations Command surgeons many years later. But essentially in 1987, in 1988, he provided a venue for SF Special Forces medics and those special operations medical personnel that were assigned to the Special Forces groups an opportunity to be able to get updates. So he held a meeting on Fort Bragg near the United States Army JFK Special Warfare Training Center on Fort Bragg during that time. And then in 1992, Selma was officially stood up and became a 501c nonprofit. And Dale Hamilton, Bob Clayton, and a, a Colonel Jimmy Coy were some of the founders of Selma in the beginning in 1992. First meeting was held in the Prince Charles Hotel in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And it was some interesting times, evidently, from what I was told. I personally wasn't there, but from there, the venue was too small for them, so they moved it to outside of the Holiday Inn by I-95. Issues with transportation happened, so they decided to move it to Tampa. From Tampa, it's moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And this coming year, it will be in Raleigh, North Carolina. What is the mission of SOMA, and has it changed dramatically from 1987 when it was first conceived to 1992 when it became official? What, what is the main mission of SOMA? To help and provide updates to the special forces and special operations medical personnel within the United States Army Special Operations Command. Its main mission is to advance the science, technology, knowledge, and skills of unconventional medicine and provide increased survivability, reduce suffering, and speed recovery of those that become injured during special operations missions. And it also has integrated, and this is a big change, is some, some of the civilian tactical personnel, law enforcement, and federal agencies. So there are several different tracks. Initially, it was just one major track that everybody would attend. Now there's breakouts in terms of there's a canine session for military working dogs. There is a tactical emergency medical or TIMS subsession. And they're also having within the human performance track, they're having a, a brain health subsession that will talk about traumatic brain injuries and um, PTSD. So as the historian for the organization, what are some of the most significant achievements or milestones in the history of SOMA? Well, SOMA's actually been a kind of a clearinghouse for many of the changes that have happened over the, the course of the last three decades. In the uh, late 90s, after uh, Somalia, uh, there was a push for TCCC to integrate some of the, uh, the changes in, into the military. And so some of the major talks about it were held at, at SOMA. 
during the 90s. Now it's it's a standard thing throughout the military is, but initially it, is, it had started within the special operations community. We had started teaching TCCC back in the 1997, 1998, and it was based on what happened in Somalia. So uh, much of it was talked about at SOMA so that some of the other people that were part of the higher headquarters could hear about it and, and try to integrate it. In the 2000s, there was a move to integrate the human performance, the tactical athlete, so to speak. And so we had a panel and it had many of the leading human performance individuals from throughout the United States that were talk about how the special operations operator is much like an athlete in the sense that they need to be treated the same way. If they go out on a mission, they've got to be able to not only be prepared for the type of terrain that they're going to go experience, but also to be able to come back and work on repairing those injuries that they might have before they go back out. And so that wasn't the train of thought. It was always push-ups, sit-ups, two-mile run when it came to the operators. And, and that changed the divide based on some of the meetings that they had at SOMA throughout the U.S. SOCOM community. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that SOMA as an organization has faced over the years and how were they addressed? From year to year, it depends upon the ability to bring people from the special operations community and We've had great support from U.S. SOCOM over the years in terms of, you know, some of the leadership coming and, and, and talking at the, and be the main speakers. And that's been great, but it's been, it's been tough at times because the government DOD has certain requirements for going to conferences. And so over the years, that's, that's changed up, but between that and of course, you know, the 20 year war, everybody's been busy. But since the end of the drawdown, we've seen increased attendance to our event over the years. Are there any key initiatives or projects that SOMA is focused on now that people are going to see at the upcoming meeting or maybe in the future, next several years? What, what's the future look like with SOMA? Well, SOMA's been uh, at the tip of the spear quite honestly, in trying to have blood delivered on the battlefield. They've talked about it. And a lot of times what will happen is that the groups will get together while they're at SOMA and they'll discuss how best that can be accomplished. So I'd say blood products is, is one thing. Talking about traumatic brain injuries, knowing that we've lost more service members to, to suicide than we did during the 20 years of, of war. And, and so that's being addressed as well, to be able to talk about how best to preserve our service members after they've given so much. So you also serve on an organization called Thrive, Program for Veterans Outreach, and you're a program director. Can you tell us a little bit about UNC Thrive? Sure. Yeah, my title is Veteran Outreach and Program Coordinator for the Transforming Health and Resilience in Veterans. I actually um, had retired and I was fortunate enough to be able to work for this program. It's at UNC Chapel Hill and it's a community outreach program that helps 
veterans and first responders with the lingering effects of traumatic brain injury and, uh, and PTSD. And so due to a, a gift that had been given to the University of North Carolina, it reduces the financial barriers for the veterans or first responders to come and receive treatment. Right now we have two programs. We have the three-day evaluation and we have a two and a half week intense outpatient program. The three-day evaluation provides anywhere from 10 to 12 clinicians to be able to see the veterans or first responders within a three-day period. Um, at the end of the three-day periods of the evaluation, they get a summary and they're able to take that back to their primary care provider. What that does is it allows the, the veteran to be able to have a, a, a plan to be able to improve their quality of life. Right now, it takes anywhere from six months to, to nine months for them to be able to see that number of specialists, which is a neuropsychiatrist, clinical psychiatrist, a physical therapist that specializes in vestibular function, a nutritionist, athletic trainer, and they get to see all these individuals during that three-day period and then are able to take that summary home. If we think that they can benefit from a two and a half week where they receive treatment, we invite them back. And it also includes equine therapy, art therapy, yoga, and we just added acupuncture to the program. So the first three days is, a, is an evaluation by the providers. And then they come back and they'll see those same providers over the next two and a half weeks to receive treatment. How does one overcome the stigma, especially for special operators, first responders who really don't want to show any sign of weakness? How do you get over just the hurdle of getting them to sign up for this program? Well, a lot of times the things that we hear from them when they call us is, I'm, I'm just tired of duct taping my life together. And that breaks my heart to hear that. I'm tired of being a burden on, our fa on my family. And so a lot of times it's the being a veteran, their past having to serve um, on active duty anymore. And so the thing that qualifies them for the program is that I possibly have had a, a head injury, concussion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be within their medical records. And so to get past the stigma, has, it, it has to do with them. They have to be able to find it within themselves to want to better themselves, not live just to, just to continue to live their life until they die. And we've heard that as well. And so I don't think there's any kind of a magic formula for them to come forward, but we do find that more and more, if let's say that you and I, had served together and I found out about this program and I told you about it, would you be more willing to come and see it? And so that's kind of how we reach out and, and are able to get them to come to the program. Through the, the brotherhood or sisterhood of serving together, the word about the Thrive program and, and, and we don't just talk about our program, we talk about some of the other programs that are out there as well. Cause we just want them to get better. You know, we want them to be able to enjoy the next chapter of their life after they've sacrificed so much. Does anybody have a handle on the scope of the problem? How much unmet need is out there amongst veterans and first responders? That's just, we don't have the capability to take care of. 
are we getting our hands around it or do we need a lot more help? I think that the type of services that we're providing right now in the Thrive Program, they should be able to receive it while they're still on active duty. Right now, it looks like I'm, I'm in North Carolina and North Carolina is one of the five largest um, states that's dealing with transitioning service members. And so they expect over 100,000 service members to be making the transition out of the military. And so do I think that they, we have our hand, there's a handle on it? No, but we are a solution. And that's the thing that we try to do. We try to get the word out so that people understand it. And we're not the only organization within our network that provides this type of service. So there's us at UNC Chapel Hill, but there's within our network, there are four other locations that we can refer the veteran or first responder to. As I mentioned earlier, we're more the mild to moderate traumatic brain injury or PTSD. If it's more severe, we have other locations that we can refer the veterans or first responders to. If they reach out to us, we try to provide them answers. And I think that's, that's really the important thing. And having served as long as I did, I get the phone calls from these guys and, and gals, and they just want answers. And the other piece of it is too, is some of the people that come, they just want to hear that they're okay. And there are a lot of the veterans, we hear a lot about um, the veterans that they're broke and, and, and they have issues and everything. But sometimes it's just a matter of them being inside their head and not, not understanding physiologically what's going on. And when they come to us and they get the answers that, hey, you just got X, Y, and Z that needs to be corrected and you'll be okay. That's wonderful news for them. And that's all they need to hear that they're going to be okay. And we're happy to be able to provide those answers. Now, let's say somebody is listening to this podcast and they fall into a category of a veteran who's struggling with some of the harsh things that happened during their multiple deployments, maybe a TBI, maybe a, a PTSD. What could they do right now if they said, hey, that's me. Sergeant Rodriguez really kind of explained exactly what I'm talking about. I feel like I'm broken. Who can I reach out to? You can get in touch, of course, if it's emergency with the suicide hotline. If you're in crisis and you need assistance, that should be your first stop. But once you're able to get some of those things settled, we'd be happy to see you. We'd be happy to refer you to any kind of resources that we know of if we're not the right ones for you. So our website is thriveprogram.unc.edu if you want to reach out to us and and just check out the webpage and read through it. And there, there are a lot of answers there. And our phone numbers are there. If you want to call us, we'd be happy to, to talk to you. We've been speaking with retired Army Master Sergeant Sam Rodriguez on WarDoc's podcast. Sam, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation, both in uniform and, and after retiring. I appreciate you having me. And you guys are doing an awesome job. And I appreciate you being able to spread the word about military medicine across the United States and the world. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts. 
and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.